In today's episode, I am joined by the Dr. Reiner Knizia, internationally acclaimed board game designer. We discuss a wide spectrum of topics, including the following. Reiner's inspiration for Soda Smugglers, Puma Fiosi, and Hot Lead. Three 20-minute games making up the Criminal Capers collection, which you can find on Kickstarter live right now. Reiner also shares with us his favorite animal, his mysterious 2000 game library, his design philosophy and how it varies between small and large games, normal years versus designing during a pandemic, revisiting classic concepts versus creating new ideas. Speaking of new ideas, Dr. Kenizia even teases out some juicy information about his upcoming publications including the hotly anticipated Siege of Runadar and top secret follow-up to My City. With this episode, we are in for a treat. For your information, this episode was recorded in mid-July, roughly three weeks before its publication. Also, due to us being on opposite ends of the world and my new home having a questionable internet connection, there are a few minor connection drops in this recording. I apologize for the occasional hiccups, but promise that the trouble is worth it. So, without further ado, let's dive in to the good stuff. My name is Nick Murray, and this is the Bytewing Games Podcast. So, with over 700 games and books published and dozens of awards received, Dr. Reiner Knizia is a legend in the board game industry. Though games have been a big part of his life since he was a child, Reiner initially studied to become a doctor of mathematics and then worked as a banker in England. When he reached 40, he decided it was time for a major change. Life should be fun, games are fun, and people should have fun with games. So from then on, he fully dedicated his life to game design, and his motto became bringing enjoyment to the people. Some of Reiner's best-known designs include Tigris and Euphrates, Lost Cities, Ra, Modern Art, Ingenious, The Quest for El Dorado, and 2020 Spiel des Jahres nominee, My City. He's also the designer of our upcoming Bytewing Games publication, The Criminal Capers Collection, featuring Soda Smugglers, Puma Fiosi, and Hot Lead. So Reiner, it's a pleasure to have you here. How are you doing? I'm very well, and thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. We, we've been looking forward to this podcast episode for quite a while now as we've prepared for this uh, upcoming Kickstarter next month of your games. And so I thought that may be a good place to start as far as this interview goes. And we were wondering what inspired your designs for Puma Fiosi, Soda Smugglers, and Hot Lead, which they were formerly known as, as Mafiosi and Hot Goods and Hot Lead. So do you remember what inspired those designs initially? Yeah, I mean, you are now putting them together as a, a criminal capers collection. Yep. Uh, they were not designed as a collection as such. So they were designed yep. as individual yep. games. And so each of them has their own story, longer or shorter, their own inspiration and uh, their own uh, challenges in a way. So um, there isn't an answer for the whole three of them, but uh, essentially it's what I'm trying to do is 
I'm trying to pick up an innovative, uh, nice entry point for a new game system, a new game mechanism, find a nice theme that gels with it. Sometimes the theme changes because the mechanism changes and so I found something which fits better and which is also relevant. Um, and so it, it is always the starting point which then drives me for the game. Uh, now I've talked a lot and not answered your question. Uh, <laughs> For Puma Fiosi, it was the idea that uh, you don't always have the highest card winning, but it is the second highest card. So essentially, uh, in this world, you don't want to always stick out with your head because in this environment, the police may be after you, your colleagues, which are not liking you, may be after you. So don't don't put your head too far over water. Stay a safe number two. And so you always want to play the second highest card and that one wins it. But the problem is, if you play a very or reasonably low card to be second, Mm -hmm. then you then have to use this card, though your family member, and put it into the hierarchy. And if you put a weak family member into the hierarchy, uh, then you have problems during the game because then the stronger people come around in the hierarchy and it's not good news. <laughs> On the other hand, if you try to put a very high person into the hierarchy, you'll be the highest card and you won't get in there. Right. So this is the dilemma. I try to build something around and to give uh, people this nail biting. Oh, does it work out or does it not work out? <laughs> um, Soda Smugglers is kind of inspired by a smuggling uh, scenario, as the title says. I didn't want to smuggle any um, hard stuff. And so initially we discussed whether we smuggle uh, chocolates, and then we decided soda is uh, nicer to show, uh, nicer to depict, and gives gives very nice uh, view when you lay out the cards. But it is sure. essentially that there are restrictions how many sodas you can take over the border, and one person is always the border guard. And so I tried to build in the psychology of, all right, two suitcases I can take, one soda is allowed, do I try to take many and convince the others of us I'm, I'm not doing it? Or is the border guard, which changes during the game, uh, thinking that he has a go at me and the border guard has certain activities and actions to open a suitcase, to do this and that. And so I'm trying to smuggle myself through. If I get arrested innocently, I get a compensation, but uh, maybe a little bribe will also do. And the main thing here is you are not entirely free how you act round by round, because you get five suitcases and of these five, you have to choose two. And sometimes all the suitcases are full and you have to smuggle. And then you can <laughs> smile and say, okay, you cannot always play your own strategy. And that's good. It forces you to put a smiling face on and sometimes go with the cards you got dealt, makes the best out of your hand, you get dealt. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's a psychology looking at people and seeing who is smuggling this time and who gets away and who is in the front and who do we need to have a go at and who do I want to arrest? Yes. <laughs> Definitely. And finally, which I've always wanted to do and it took me quite a while to get it right. So it, it was lying there for some years and it was a bit stuck. And eventually I had the right idea uh, to, to make it into a very crispy game, it 
it, it, there is a little bit of a relationship to Pumafiosi in a, in a way that uh, we also have cards which have a, a ranking order and everybody plays a card, but this time it's not the second one, uh, that's Pumafiosi. This time everybody uh, gets to strike and uh, gets some lead on the crimes we're investigating. Uh, but depending on what rank of card you play, you get a different lead because you see the lead in the middle and if you play a low card, you get a lower one, but how low do you play to get the second from the bottom or do you want the highest one and then other people want to spoil your investigations by playing an even higher cards, even though they don't need the highest card. So this is a little bit looking at what people are investigating because that's in front of you and you want to get a good lead and a good investigation on the five different crimes there are, mm -hmm. but you don't want to overdo it. Because if you get too many cards of investigation, then the people, the, the criminals uh, smell a rat and you lose all these cards. And so, um, yes, investigate, but not too aggressively and see that you pick up lots of bonuses by being the best investigator in the different crimes or investigating each crime a little bit. But life is short and the game is short. And so every turn counts, every lead counts, uh, because in the end... Um, it is not easy to get everything in place as you would like to investigate. <laughs> yeah. And that's, you know, across all three of those games, something we've really appreciated as we've played them is, is how you've put the, the players kind of front and center in the spotlight of these games and, and the mechanisms kind of help dictate these interactions and, and the ways that you try to analyze the psychology of the other players and, and kind of outfox them in many ways. Yeah. And uh, that's added a lot of variety to these games that are really quite simple in their rules and and in teaching and learning them. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun to explore. Um, and something that's that we've kind of done to tweak these themes a little bit, partially to play to the strengths of our illustrator, but also to hopefully make them stand out in in this crowded industry of card games is is by making them part of the same cohesive universe, the Criminal Capers collection and, and doing it in an anthropomorphic theme. And so I've noticed that you do have quite a few games with animals in them um, across your, you know, over 700 publications of, of designs and books. And I was wondering, do you have a favorite animal? First of all, I have to say, I, I really like your expression that these games are about outfoxing the other players. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's actually absolutely right. There's always this psychology in there. What do I do? How do I set the others up? What do I get best out of it? Uh, animals. I think my favorite animals is actually the penguin. There's no, I mean, I, I know. Now I'm getting I'm getting beaten up by my colleagues here because we have, of course, a uh, um, a, a, a mascot, uh, which is a lemur. It's oh, uh, in our inspector Kota, who is uh, <laughs> having he's running our web, uh, our Facebook page. He's on our website, and uh, currently he's in Scotland because uh, one of my colleagues, Karen, is in Scotland. Uh, but he he is, of course, uh, I have to say that this is my favorite my favorite <laughs> mascot, and so on. So I apologize to the penguins. Uh, but, <laughs> Penguins are very nice. <laughs> well, I'm glad we were able to coincidentally sneak a penguin into hot lead. I don't know if you've seen that card illustration, but yes, I have. 
he's one of the investigators. So that's exciting. And we'll have to uh, find a way to sneak a lemur into, into one of our Reiner Knizia designs in the future. Kota would be extremely pleased. <laughs> yeah, well, we look forward to that. Um, so I guess going along the lines of, of these small card games, um, you, you've designed the whole spectrum of games, it seems, from legacy game My City, which spans over the course of many rounds, to, to larger, more strategic games like Tigris and Euphrates and Amun-Ra, to these smaller card games like Modern or modern Art, the card game. There's High Society, and then there's, there's this Criminal Capers collection. So between designing small card games versus large board games, what do you find are the advantages and disadvantages of each? Well, I think particularly if you're a full-time game designer, you do not want to specialize yourself too much into one genre. So for me, it is very important to, to keep the width and to try out lots of different approaches and lots of different styles of games. And sometimes you don't even know when you set out with a new idea how big or small it will become and you add things to it, you take things away from it. So um, for me, it is important to, to go with the time because uh, games are a mirror of our times and, and our times change and our times get fast, accelerates faster and faster. And so for me, it's important to get a, a, an easy access to the games. So I'm, I'm not the person who has lots of administration and lots of extra rules in the games. I'm, try, I'm, a, I'm a scientist. I'm trying to base the basic principles of the game on very few uh, general rules and essentially create a platform for the players uh, so that they can interact with each other. And so every new player brings a new aspect to the game. And therefore, if you play often with the same group, there's another dynamics as if you play with different people and you have to adjust to the different platform again, who is acting on the platform. But it essentially means that uh, I'm trying to, 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 put my designs as wide as I can. And I get inspired when the, when the smartphone games came up, the, the mobile games, uh, that inspired me a lot because I, I tried a few designs there. And it's not so much the designs themselves, but then the new challenge of putting this game onto a small screen where you can actually not do much, but you have all the electronics in the background who can do the handling and you cannot really communicate uh, the game rules. But you can, but nobody reads them. So it needs to be very intuitive. And children's games, when you go and test with them, with the kids, you get different feedback and you see how they play. And so you need to look at the target group and you need to do justice to the game. So my, my games are my children. And so you cannot force children somewhere. You can only lead them to develop their full power. And with this respect, I enjoy all these types of different games. And I think it's a fundamental point that you have to enjoy, enjoy your own designs. Otherwise, how can you make a really good game if you don't like playing it? Yes. So, uh, and if it's big, if it's small, if it's card, if it's something, I don't mind. I'm, I want it to be innovative. I want it to push the borders, the boundaries uh, for the games. And you mentioned um, my city. Uh, I've tried to 
given you aspect to legacy games. I would have liked to invent legacy games, but you can't invent everything. You can't <laughs> set every trend, but at least you can try to add a significant component, a significant aspect to the trend, which I've done. And uh, Eldorado, the same thing, that's a deck building game uh, where I've tried to make the principle, which is a fantastic principle, yes, make this, and again, I didn't invent the principle, but uh, the, the, the fantastic idea in its initial form, in its ingenious initial form is relatively abstract. And I remember myself having quite some challenges getting into the game system. Mm. And so I thought if I add a board and if people know what a deck building game is, they will immediately understand it. If there are listeners who don't, then I hope to take them with me now because you have a little set of cards, your own deck, and you play through this deck over and over again, but you change the deck, you get new cards, you throw cards out, and you try to build an engine to reach an objective, usually many points. I took the points away and I decided to put a board in. So it's the it's a quest for Eldorado. So you know where you're going. Or you don't know where you're going, but you're trying <laughs> to find it. Sure. And the, the important thing here is it becomes much clearer. For, for me, for my understanding what to do, because I have my original deck, I go through the jungle, yes, I need my machete, I need maybe the jeep, and I want to, it's a race, of course, yes, to get there. But then the river comes. So how do I get over the river? Yes, the machete doesn't help me hitting the water, so I need a boat or something. So I need to get a boat cart before I reach the river. And then over the river, there is the desert. And then the question is, why am I still carrying this boat through the <laughs> desert? So it makes quite clear that I want to get cards and I want to get rid of cards and I want to adapt my engine. That means my facilities, which I can use uh, to the individual situation where my figure is in. And it becomes so natural uh, when you just see where you are, what ex what what expects your figure, uh, and then adjust your card set accordingly. And once you have this basic set on on the idea of a deck building game, changing your deck, uh, then you have a very rich universe to to build something. And again, I I, I tried with this design, which I do very often, to try to open fantastic ideas to a wide audience so that the wide audience, I want to reach a lot of people and bringing enjoyment to the people you, you stated the motto. It's really reaching a lot of people, bringing a lot of enjoyment to them and making the games easily accessible with these wonderful ideas, which everybody around the world has created. Yeah, and we've had a great time with those games. Um, I, I was absolutely impressed with how easy it was to, to teach newcomers the quest for Eldorado each time I do so. Uh, because, as you said, it's it's more intuitive than than the original mechanism being so abstract as it is um, was to help help people understand how the mechanism of deck building works. Um, so we've we've really enjoyed playing the quest for El Dorado, and and uh, even for me, someone who's played hundreds of games and and enjoys you know heavy complex games, I've found a lot of joy in the simplicity and the, and the streamlined nature of, of a game like Quest for Eldorado. And since you've brought up deck building and, and the ways you've tried to evolve on that, uh, another game that's upcoming from you 
One that that I'm quite excited for is called the Siege of Runadar. Um, I don't know if you're allowed to share much about that, but I I'm, I'm curious if you try to evolve or or take deck building in a slightly different way because as I understand it, that's a cooperative deck building game of survival of sorts. Um, is there anything you can share about that? Oh yes, it is. I my understanding is it is very close to being published. Uh, it's planned for Essen. It's planned for autumn now, and uh, I have um, approved the final rules. Uh, and so it's I, I don't know the exact status, but it is in production, and uh, I think um, uh, the publisher will um, will soon give more information if they haven't done yet. I think they used the. Uh, the opportunity that it was once the, the hottest topic on board game geek right. to spread some more news so there must be something out there i can uh, i cannot give all the secrets away because <laughs> i leave that uh, to the to the to the publisher uh, how they do their marketing strategy but uh, as you rightly say this was this was a challenge i, I like challenges yes <laughs> and this was a challenge how do you build a engaging a cooperative deck building game because now that we know what deck building is um, if you have a common deck so we play together we have one deck we draw the cards from the deck we have a big pack of cards and we play and then i do something um, it's always in deck buildings is sometimes an effort to get new cards in and so i get a new card and it goes in this general deck and so I don't really see the effects of my play. And it takes a long time until the card comes around. And I can't really build, as in an individual deck building game, my small deck, which then has really powers. It, it, it is all watered down. So that, I found, was not the right approach. Mm. On the other hand, if everybody has their own decks, then where is the cooperative side of deck building? Of course, I can. each player can do their own deck building and then... You don't really have a cooperative deck building game. You have a deck. Hello, Nick from the future here. So this is the part of the recording where we have a 20 second break in the connection. Of course, it happens when Reiner is sharing the dirty deets on my most hotly anticipated game of the rest of this year. <sighs> Fate is such a fickle thing. But essentially what he says is that you don't get much cooperation out of a game if everybody is simply focusing on their own decks. And this is what brought him to the concept of Siege of Runadar, which he explains right now. This is playing in a fortress where we are dwarves and we are trying to defend our fortress and our treasure in gold against the hordes of attackers, which completely surprisingly come after our gold, which we never expected. Uh, and so we are, have uh, a blacksmithy there and we have a carpentry there. And so we can go there and we can use the materials to make a big sword or make a big weapon or make a big tool. And so I might work on this a little bit and make the wooden part. And then the other person might do a little bit. Uh, we can freely move around and does something on the metal part. And eventually this one card, this one new 
tool item will be forged and done. But it's now done together and the card lies there. It doesn't belong to anybody. And anybody of the players can pick that card up. So we can cooperate in creating the cards and then each player can decide what do I take. And the cooperation, of course, means not one player taking all the good cards. That is devastating. It's not good for play, but it's also not good for winning because sure. you, need, you, you cannot afford to have one weak player. Because then when critical situations come up and it's a weak player's turn, he cannot do anything, he has the wrong cards. So you need to make sure that you're nicely balanced, but also maybe you specialize a little bit. Because what you do in a cooperative game, of course, is that uh, you have many, many ways to lose. You get overrun by the hordes, uh, the, the, the monsters come in. Uh, you, you run out of gold because you give it away to mercenaries. Uh, there's many, many things that can happen. There is only one way that can save you, and that is you need to dig a tunnel underground, under the mountains, and it's a very nice 3D setup, under the mountains to get out and, and, and leave with the gold, with as much gold as you can. Uh, but of course, if you just ignore everything and you dig, 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 which is the right thing to do, then you will lose because all the other criteria will make you lose the game. Of course, there are so many distractions so that you can distract yourself throughout the whole game and you have kept everything at bay, but the game runs out and you've never left your fortress and then you run out of food and supplies and then it's over as well. So it is this... Um, how, and this is a discussion between the players. You cannot do this, go there. No, no, I need to defend this. No, ignore him and do that. <laughs> and these dilemmas, these discussions um, for, the, for the poor dwarves, which we are representing, is what makes the game alive. And no, we don't need a new sword. Get out of this blacksmith, go and dig this thing, or get up the tower and, and, and use your. Do you have a bow and arrow card? Yeah, but then use it there. What do you do with the digging? And this is exactly what happens. Yes. <laughs> Man, this game sounds wild. I'm very much looking forward to it. And uh, yeah, I, I've played a lot of deck builders and. Um, typically one of my complaints about them is, is they are tend to be less interactive, um, for whatever reason. Um, cause it's kind of a very heads down building your own combo affair, but I, I'm very much looking forward to, you know, quest for Eldorado and, and introduce this element of tension and racing, which I very much appreciated that interaction between players. And it sounds like the siege of Runadar, as you say, in, uh, introduces a lot of dangling carrots and, and incentives that players are collaborating and, and arguing and, and trying to solve this whole bigger problem over together. And so I'm looking forward to those interactions. Um, yeah, and the publisher, Ludonova, who have done a number of our games before, has really done a, a marvelous job in creating this three-dimensional, impressive uh, uh, setup so that you're, you really are in this fortress and people come, things come from outside. The, there is the opportunity to make a... Uh, a, a game with lots of miniatures. Uh, that, of course, would drive the price up. So we wanted to stay, at the moment we have cardboard figures, yes, yes. Uh, because we wanted to stay in a very reasonable, normal board game price for that. Uh, but of course, I can imagine that uh, there will be the one or the other um, opportunity then to, to beef up uh, the game to uh, deluxe editions. Mm. Um, not a new concept to you, but no, I think... No. Uh, a lot of people on Kickstarters like this, and so I leave that in in the hands of the the publisher. But they 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 it it is a wonderful uh, construction for the amount of very little money essentially you have to pay for that wonderful game and really get a lot for it. Right, yeah, components. We, 
Right. We have their uh, production Babylonia, which is both, you know, a, a reasonably priced game, but also a very nice production. And, and they've mm-hmm. teased out the, the insert, as you say, with the 3d, um, the 3d setup of the, the walls and uh, on their Twitter page. And so it's been exciting to see, see that's be unveiled. And so we look forward to, to learning more about that from Ludanova as they, they prepare to release it in the coming months. And uh, I would highly recommend people who are interested in cooperative games or deck builders, they definitely go check that one out. Um, another, another game you brought up um, just several minutes ago was that we talked about was My City. And uh, I, as I understand it, that was your first legacy game or legacy style game that's been published. And so, you know, my wife and I played through the whole thing and loved it. And it was one of those games that was very addicting for us to be like, well, let's just do one more game. You know, we, we mm-hmm. would, uh, one thing that appealed to us, we played a lot of legacy games. And again, one, one of my common uh, barriers to entry for me is, is as they pile on more and more mechanisms, um, it's, it takes a long time to set up and even remember what, what was added in the previous rounds. But we found with My City, uh, it was very easy to jump into and play a quick 20, 30 minute round. And we would tell ourselves, yeah, we have energy for that. And then when we got done with the first round, we would say, oh, well, now we, we have to go for another one. This is just, uh, it's getting too interesting. And um, so I'm curious, do you, do you have any plans for a sequel to My City or, or another type of legacy game entirely? Uh, we are doing this by a video conference, and I guess you can look around the corner here because I, I have another designer conference tonight, and uh, there is actually a, a family member on the table which we are discussing. Uh, very clearly, um, we uh, it, the game has. I really love the game and the game has been a big success and a lot of co-production partners have picked the game up. Um, we have lots of different language copies here. And uh, of course, this game invites to do more about its legacy game. And so um, there, there will be more, but on this one, um, I, I probably have to keep my lips closed uh, <laughs> where, we, where we are going and what we are doing and we, we, are, we are following various approaches and of course it will also, uh, like the original game, the, the, the core publisher, the lead publisher will be Cosmos in Germany mm-hmm. and so um, they have the games, we, we, we have a clear agreement, a clear plan what is happening next um, and a few details still need to be filled in <laughs> but that's, that's something... Uh, that is something that, again, has driven me to new innovation. Um, the tendency of bringing up uh, expansions and uh, new game members in the family has, has grown over the last decades. And mm. uh, it, it has its justification, but I also think these expansions need to have their justification. They're not just more of the same for me. Uh, so I have quite a high... Uh, demand uh, to myself um, and a high um, hurdle if I do something like this it really needs to do something new I mean we had the Lord of the Rings where we did a few expansions and again I always uh, of course it continues the story or a place in the same universe but there need to be new aspects you want to kind of recognize the familiarity with the game, but you're buying a family member. But on the other hand, you want to explore new things and it's not just a prolongation. Now we play another eight chapters. Mm-hmm. And so what else is happening? No, it's it's different. It's, it is very different. Yes, it is. <laughs> I can't wait to get it out and play it. And, and 
Well, I share the same feelings. Uh, yeah, we're very much looking forward to, to what else you explore within this genre. Um, so I guess looking to the future, um, you know, you've been doing this for quite a long time, but do you have any personal goals or career goals for yourself um, in the coming years as far as a game designer or, or just as a human being in general? Any, any kind of goals that you're looking to accomplish? Anything on your bucket list that's still to be done? I think the challenge is always to remain relevant and not to rest on your laurels of the past. Uh, it's, the, as I say, the, the times are changing, people are changing. I have a lot of uh, students now in my test groups because uh, I have uh, my inverted commas old play testers from the from the former years as well. But you need to you need to see what people are playing, and if you tell students you've played in time. They usually don't know what that is, yes, uh, right. in, in, in respect to games, uh, and they can rediscover it. But uh, this, this is one of the important things. I want to stay fresh and do new things and uh, make an impact on the industry. Uh, the, the bigger challenge, of course, is um, uh, I've built this business over my life, and um, I'm not planning to give up, but uh, uh, time is, in, uh, is, is not infinite. And so what I'm also trying to do is to, to set up a structure and build something that is becoming less dependent on me. Um, and I say less dependent on me, it's not just the game designing. It is, of course, the whole operational side, which has grown with the business. It is the whole... Uh, yeah, licensing side. We deal with we we deal with many many different uh, publishers uh, all over the world. We are signing far more than a hundred license agreement agreements every year. So there is quite a an engine, if you want, uh, behind it. And uh, like you build game engines, uh, this is also a, a company engine to build to keep it as the same approach to keep it as simple as possible to keep it effective to have the right people involved to make sure that this business continues because um, I think for a family business, for a small self-owned business, um, finding people to carry this on is usually a major challenge because uh, the problem is I have gathered a lot, a lot of experience. And um, from the legal point of view, from the design point of view, from the production point of view, I, I try to understand the whole world which, which affects the game design. And um, I don't always want to know better. So you need to let go and need to let people who you're trying to engage in the, in the business let them make their own mistakes and, uh, and let them grow and uh, essentially... Uh, give up a little bit of this control. I'm a control freak, it doesn't help. I'm a perfectionist, it doesn't help. But these are, these are some wider challenges um, to, 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 to make this legacy, which I've tried to build with the games, not disappear when I run out of energy. Mm. I hope I will never do, but I think reality is different. And so uh, not that I'm panicking, uh, but it is something long-term to think about because I don't want to end up sometime in the future with my back against the wall and then being forced to steps. I want to, con I want to guide the steps and I want to build the platform myself where then uh, the future goes in the right hands and goes in. Well, that's, that's very good news for 
for longtime Kinesia fans and and new Kinesia fans who who are like me, very excited for for new games you're putting out, but also finding that the games that came out decades ago uh, originally have aged very well. And and we love to see those come back from new publishers. And and so that's good to hear that's that you're making plans and and considering long term how to how to keep this this legacy alive. Um, and you you mentioned that you've you've experienced you've gained a lot of experience personally and uh i i imagine you've likely worked with more publishers than any other designer ever uh just thinking about all the different versions of your games that have come out between various publishers who have who have had the licensing rights at one time or another and the many different games you've put out and so i was wondering have you observed or what patterns have you observed for what does or doesn't work for getting a game to sell well, kind of from a, a publisher's perspective. I imagine you've seen, you know, the same design do well in one region and not so well in another region or do well in one version and not as well in another version. Um, what are your observations uh, from all of that? Yes, unfortunately, there is no good answer to this, what makes a game successful. Uh, you can make many mistakes and with experience you can avoid many mistakes uh, and you can do everything to make a game a success but in the end there is luck involved and there is uh, just uh, how is it perceived in the first reviews and then it goes and there's a whole theory behind it you can read lots of books how these things uh, take their own dynamics uh, for it, it's chaos theory sometimes where very little effects can then uh, I mean, as you say, a butterfly in India can cause a hurricane in, uh, in the US. Uh, and a lot of these things are there as well. They're not excuses for not doing your best job, but it, it is, it's like in the, why do we call uh, movies where people never know which movie is earning the money of the nine other movies which are losing the money and we call them blockbusters because on the first uh, weekend of release, you see if the people queue around the blocks and then you say, okay, we've got it. But it's very difficult to protect uh, uh, beforehand. So it's use experience, it's uh, understanding the markets, uh, understanding the relevance. Of course, there are two things here. We are not as close to the markets as the publishers are because we design the games and the publishers then uh, market the games, sell the games uh, and have the direct uh, distribution, direct contact to the, to the market, to the shops, to the buyers. Um, but as you say, we are dealing with a lot of different publishers all over the world with very different types of games and of course we are getting the feedback from all these publishers um, about the sales figures of course a smaller publisher um, who sometimes does a really wonderful game will have smaller sales numbers than a bigger publisher even if the game is not so innovative or more box standard which a bigger publisher sometimes need uh, so but we have an enormously rich insight I think more than any publisher again uh, from what, how do the different markets develop, what runs in markets relatively good, uh, what are downturns in markets, where does currently Corona hit and so on. So it's, uh, this, this gives us a lot of insight and I analyze that very carefully every time over the, the holiday season and I, I have my statistics and I see the different ter territories, the different game types and I try to to understand as much as possible over the markets 
um, because it interests me, it fascinates me. And that is also a very rich source to see uh, where can we bring the most enjoyment to the people. Yeah, that's a good perspective and, and kind of helpful for, for us from a publisher perspective to see your insights. I know you've offered us some, as we've shown you, uh, artwork and and different ideas for how to develop and produce these three games that we're working on. It's been very helpful to get your insights and feedback as well with all that experience. And so we, we have appreciated that. Um, and one thing I'm curious about, I've heard about you and, and as a publisher, we're, we're planning to send you copies of these games once they are produced. And so I understand you keep a large library of all the copies of your published games. And so my, my question is, what does this library look like? Do you have it organized in a certain way? And do you often give tours to visitors of this library? <laughs> no, we're not giving tours to the visitors. <laughs> we have very few visitors. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I imagine right now. <laughs> It's, it's mainly business partners when publishers come and visit us to see new games. No, it is, I mean, I, I, I sometimes cannot understand publishers or people who are in the creative business that they do not collect their creations. Mm. I mean, why do you set these children in the world and then forget about them? <laughs> uh, for me, I'm proud of them. And for me, I want to see each edition and I keep a copy of every game of every edition. And that's far more than 2000 different uh, copies now. Wow. And we have one copy here in our archive of every edition of every game as far as we know it. And there is sometimes detective work because uh, not everything gets reported uh, and not every sample gets automatically sent to us. So there's a lot of chasing we need to do and a lot of collecting and of course the internet and Board Game Geek and all the different um, forums help us to see what happens and get our, get our games. But that's something which is, sometimes publishers don't understand that really. This is something which is very, very important for us. Um, it lets me go back and see when we are talking about games we republished, what has been done, what can be done, what new aspects can we uh, do with them. We, we have, of course, immediately in front of us a different, if there have been different editions, the different uh, graphic works which have been done, artworks which have been done with it. And sometimes it also helps uh, to look, uh, if you see a game uh, which is illegally copied, uh, I mean, people... Uh, and China, unfortunately, is still the, the worst part there in the world. Uh, they just copy everything. They copy your cover. They copy the publisher's name. They just make a one-to-one -one replica of it. Sure. Uh, but some little things, uh, then they misprint uh, your name or something. So it is really, does this exist or is this a fake? And <laughs> so, again, this helps us to go to the library and have a look at it. And, again, we have a whole um, cupboard in the library with, with fakes and with... Uh, with illegal copies and uh, again um, maybe I shouldn't say that publicly you cannot be the policeman for everything but uh, where people get too drastic then we would also take our measures but again yeah, you yeah. can police the world for the rest of your life and this <laughs> is not my mission uh, but my mission is to protect the to protect my business partners uh, to protect the publishers and they get exclusive rights and so essentially when their rights and their business prospects are being threatened 
then I think it is only fair that I do something to protect them. Um, and I have the experience uh, how one can address this, but it's, as I said, it's a, it's a fine choice when to act and when to just leave it and how big the impact is. Well, yeah, that's, you know, from the library to the, the cupboard of, of black market games, it's, it's quite interesting to me, although I'm, I imagine it can be a headache for you sometimes, uh, as you say, to, to track down copies of your games that you haven't received or those kinds of things. But um, yeah, that's very, very interesting that you've kept up this collection. Do you imagine this, you might try to form some sort of museum out of this at some point, mm -hmm. or it would be something I'd be interested to see, at least as a fan of, of uh, board games and, and of your designs? Well, the point here is uh, nobody in their right mind is really interested in, in, in looking and studying these 2,000 <laughs> different editions. Uh, but it is a nice source for us to do specific exhibitions. We did with one of the, the, the institutions here, we've done a, a big exhibition only of the modern art games. And modern art is a fantastic one because we have so many local editions and all the publishers have put their local artwork in there. And of course, we have all the cards and all the covers in there. And so we had a lot of display cases with the different games. And so you can actually fill a whole exhibition room with just this. And that's fascinating because people see how much a single game can live by just what the illustrators, the, 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 the artists uh, add to it. And so these things will happen, but it's in the end, my, we also need to understand what mission do we have. And my mission is not to be a museum. So I'm not a, a collector of all the histories or keep all my prototypes so that in the afterworld, people will then uh, be able to analyze everything. Uh, this, uh, it, it is practical. Um, I love my games. I love to see the different editions, to see what has changed, to see what the, how the rules have been done differently and so on and so on and so on. Uh, but it's, it's more for a practical purpose that we have an overview of the creations and can go back. And uh, if another publisher interested, at least have a, a sample in our hands where we can talk about it. Oh, very cool. Um, I, I have a few more questions for you, I, I think, uh, as far as your coming designs and the things you're working on. Um, I guess to start out, are there any mechanisms, themes, or game experiences that you are most excited about at the moment? Or do you ever get excited about a particular uh, experience you want to create for players and, and then try to make multiple games of it? And, and are you currently in that stage? <laughs> I'm always in that stage. I mean, I'm even more in that stage now than usual because we have Corona and testing is very much restricted. And so I, as, as people, when they did follow me a little bit uh, know I have a lot of drawers here every drawer well, you see some in the background there sure <laughs> the, the, the listeners cannot but uh, a lot of drawers each drawer has a new design in it and during corona I had to buy 50 more drawers to uh, wow. put all the designs in there which are now ready for testing hmm. uh, and it's it's yeah, it, it's getting a little bit frustrating because the dynamics gets lost a little bit to do a design, to try it out and to iteratively work on it. Uh, but there are lots of, the, the I, I think there are lots of good and innovative approaches in there. But 
I need to I need to get back to this testing because you can so easily wander off on the different paths if you don't get a, a, a reality check on these things. Right. And so I, I, I really hope that uh, we get this under control and that we can uh, soon test again because, as I said, I think there are a number of I have. I have my high priority projects there in the corner. I see them there. Mm -hmm. And these are marked with a special color. Mm -hmm. And uh, these are some which take a lot of time. The good thing is, of course, now during Corona, I have the time to, to go into these designs and to try to do something groundbreaking. Not every game can be ground, groundbreaking. Uh, I know that every game has to be groundbreaking. I mean, that would over, overburden all the, all the players as well. But there are some where I think I have new ideas to create something which hasn't been there yet. Um, and see if I can get that to work. So, but I'm uh, I'm uh, talking a lot about uh, hot air about nothing in the end because <laughs> clearly I cannot talk about uh, sure. unpublished designs and ideas. Uh, that's uh, once they are done, they go to the publisher and then we'll see. And some of them will not uh, come uh, come to reality, and I hope many of them will. Mm. Uh, but that's something when the playtesters are back, then we will. Well, we usually play every day. So once we are back to this, then we'll go through the drawers and I have rich and rich and rich materials for them. Wow. Yeah. So it sounds like in some ways the pandemic has um, obviously restricted your ability to test your ideas, but it's also freed up your your ability to come up with more ideas or to, to dive deeper into them. Is that what how you feel things have, have been different this past year? Yeah. From a, from a design point of view, I mean, one needs to see that realistically. Um, it, if there is a year which clocks differently than the other years, it's not a big problem. It's an opportunity to address other challenges in the game side. Mm. And that's what I have done. I have, there are solitaire games, there are two-player games, which I have focused quite a bit on. Um, and some games which can be easily tested without the players around the table. And I've also focused on these and... Um, the pandemic might actually change our overall uh, industry and I mean overall way how we live not in a drastic way but of course there will be changes and so sure. uh, I'm also trying to think about these and uh, of course we are in the pandemic so I can get the right products for these right situations. <laughs> nice. Uh, another thing I'm curious about is you've designed a sort of a remix or reimagining. I don't know how you would you would term it of Tigris and Euphrates with yellow and Yangtze. You've done a similar thing with of through the desert with blue lagoon and to a smaller extent, um, sort of a, a reimagining at least partially of samurai with Babylonia uh, among other designs. And, and so I guess what, what is your, when you, when you look at these classic games like Tigris and Euphrates through the desert and samurai um, what is your goal when you, when you come up with a, a different version with a different feeling and, and are there other popular designs you're hoping or planning to to do a similar thing with? Uh, the, the two latter ones you mentioned, um, which is Samurai Babylonia and Through the Desert and Blue Lagoon, this was not an aware process of doing a sister game or do something in the vicinity okay. so that people afterwards looking at it and saying, okay, there are some uh, common ideas or common, sure. there is some, uh, identical feelings or challenges in there, but the mechanisms are different because that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to present 
uh, excitement in different ways. But uh, you, you started out with um, Tigers and Euphrates or, and, and Yellow and Yangtze, and that, of course, was a very aware um, decision to pick up the game from the 90s, uh, which for many years was actually the top of the board game geek list and probably the, the from, a, from a gamer's game's point of view, the one which is most known and probably the most successful one and the most regarded one. And so I thought it was probably justified. And then it's why do I do a second one if there is a first one? It was justified to see if I can come up with something which is in the vicinity of it has a similar approach, uh, uses a similar system, but on the other hand is completely different. Mm. And so we went from a square structure to a hex structure, but that's uh, that can just be a minor change, but then the all the mechanisms, the conflicts work differently. The monuments are built very differently in their structure and they can be built and rebuilt. And so the whole dynamics is compatible, but uh, the detailed game mechanisms are quite different. The challenges are very different. So when you play the other one, it's not, I don't need to play this one. You, you can try it out. And there have been lots of discussions and some people say the old one is their favorite and some people say the new one is their favorite. So that's the best answer you can get. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was deliberately done. And of course it's Tigers and Freitas, Yellen Yangtze, also the title, there's two rivers explain that and do that. So sometimes I pick this up uh, sometimes where I think a family is strong enough and deserves a new member. But I'm also very aware of it that uh, if I do too many of these, people will accuse me of not having any new ideas and just riding on the old families. So uh, <laughs> this is a, this has become a less important aspect for me uh, to, to really do justice to staying relevant and doing new things. Mm, that makes sense. Completely new things, yes. Sure. Well, I, I believe that's all the questions I, I have for you. I, I suppose we likely have some game designers listening as well, though. And, and uh, they I know I've, I've listened to some of your podcasts in the past that you've you've been a guest in and, and learned a lot from you from a design perspective and 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 also from a publishing perspective. Do you have any any advice that you would give to to designers who wish to follow in your footsteps? My advice is don't follow in my footsteps. My <laughs> advice is uh, find your own path. Uh, we are uh, we we are artists. We try to create new innovative things. Uh, don't follow the footsteps of steps of anybody else because mm. how will you ever free yourselves from it? You want to grow beyond uh, any um, people you see and any people that inspire you. So find your own path, follow your own way, um, be brave enough to do your stuff. Uh, this is the only way you can shine. Otherwise, you stay in the in the shadow of other people. Yes? So sure. be brave and do nice, nice stuff. We need lots of good, different ideas. And the good, the, the, the really exciting aspect for me of our industry, different to most of other, the other industries, is that people come from many different backgrounds. We are all joined together by the love for the games. And so these many different backgrounds, I call the people many different colored birds. Uh, and these bring along the, the wonderful 
variety and creativity and the magnitude of different designs to enjoy. And so there's something for everybody there. And, and I think that is very important. If we only had Knizia games in the world, the girls, the world would be a poor place. Don't misinterpret <laughs> that, but we want the variety and each game, sure. game designer has their own handwriting. So the don't follow footsteps, get your own handwriting, uh, get your own pass uh, and make great stuff. <laughs> Well, I think I think the contributions that others make as as creative individuals help to to make ourselves more creative as well. And like as you mentioned, when you first encountered uh, the mechanism of deck building, and then yeah. you you thought of ways to to kind of build on that or evolve on that. And so I think it's it's been beneficial to to all involved to to try and, as you say, uh, be be yourself and and be brave and and push the boundaries of you know, what you're used to and, and try to try new things. So yeah, we, we really appreciate all you've done just for, for the game industry, but also for the enjoyment that you've brought into our home for between my wife and I, and, and the friends and the family members that we've introduced your games to. And uh, we, we do hope to see many, many more games as well as these, these shelves full of designs come to fruition. And uh, I know from, from a Bitewing games perspective, we've, we've loved working with you on this first criminal capers collection. And we, we intend and have plans to, to work with you on future designs as well, because we enjoy what you do bring to the industry. And, and so thank you for that. And thanks for joining us today in this podcast episode. It's been very interesting to uh, hear your insights and thoughts. Well, thank you again. It was a pleasure. And uh, yes, we will create many exciting things in the future. And there you have it. The future is bright for Reiner Kinesia and Bitewing Games collaborations, as well as Reiner's future designs in general. As I mentioned at the start of this episode, Reiner Kinesia's Criminal Capers collection is currently live on Kickstarter, and we need all hands on deck to help bring this creation to life. You can follow the link in the description of this podcast episode to find our Kickstarter campaign page and learn more about these three killer 20-minute card games. By pledging your support, we'll be able to make the production of these games as amazing as possible. And when they eventually arrive on your doorstep, you'll be able to enjoy these clever concepts that have been so carefully crafted by Reiner Kinesia and our production team. I can also tell you that one of those many shelves in Reiner Kinesia's office contains another Bitewing Games Reiner Kinesia collaboration for 2022. It's exciting, it's ambitious, and it will only be made possible through your support in both the Criminal Capers Kickstarter and beyond. So go check out our campaign page and see what all the fuss is all about. And for those of you who have already pledged, thank you so much for supporting our vision. And don't forget to tell your friends and family about this campaign. In both board games and dentistry, word of mouth is the best marketing out there. Next episode, we'll have another exciting guest with the other brilliant mind and talented creator behind the Criminal Capers collection. That's Paul Halcyon, our illustrator. So stay tuned for that. My name is Nick Murray, and you've been listening to the Bitewing Games Podcast.